Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, if you would, turn your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, we'll be looking at verses 32 through 40. And as you are turning there, uh, we'd like to invite our children who may be participating in our children's class. You can make your way uh, to the back room there, and our volunteer leaders will be there to meet you and to instruct you in God's Word uh, there in your class together uh, this morning. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, for everyone else, we're going to be at the end of Hebrews 11, wrapping up this glorious chapter we have spent many weeks in uh, now together. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 40. So let me read our passage for us, and then we will pause and ask the Lord for his help this morning. Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Let's pray together. Father, what a privilege it is, again, another week to be able to be here together as your people under the truth and authority of your word. Father, we are so thankful that you have spoken, that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us. And Father, we know that it is only because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we are gathered together this morning. It's only because of his life, death, and resurrection and the spirit that you sent to dwell in us that we are able to understand any of what we have read this morning and prayed together this morning and sung about this morning. And so we are so thankful that you have opened our eyes and given us new hearts and Father, we pray that the power of your spirit would be at work in us this morning through the truth of your word. Father, we pray it every single week because every single week we want to proclaim and declare our utter dependence on you. We don't come into this room in our own strength with our own wisdom. 
Father, we confess to you that we come here this morning needing to be corrected and instructed and convicted and encouraged by your word. And so, Father, I pray that these examples of faith that you have given us throughout this chapter and even into the end of the chapter would just continue to be set before our eyes and that you would continue to give us the courage of conviction to walk in their footsteps. I pray that you would use us for the glory of your name and the way that you use them and others like them throughout the history of your people and your kingdom. And so, Father, I ask for your help this morning that you would guide my words, that we would see the truth of your word, declare the truth of your word, and be changed by it. And we pray all this in the glorious, majestic, and worthy name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as we've moved through all of chapter 11 at this point, we've looked in great detail at pretty much every person that's been mentioned in the chapter up to this point. We've, we've uh, looked in detail at the lives of Abel and Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, the people of Israel escaping slavery, and then decades later, the people of Israel entering the promised land and marching around Jericho, and then we saw the faith of Rahab. And as we looked at the faith of each of those individuals, it was important that we looked back and took the time to remember what those stories were, what those events were in the Old Testament. We wanted to be sure we saw the full details of what the author of Hebrews was showing us and discussing as we meditated over those verses. That's why this is the sixth week we've spent together in Hebrews chapter 11. But now in verses 32 through 40, the author's intention is less about the details of those events, and it's more about his desire, God's desire, to provide for us an overwhelming mountain of evidence for what faith produces in the lives of men and women. He wants us to feel that overwhelming reality as he piles on example after example of a summary of hundreds, if not thousands, of years. We're meant to feel the weight as he pours these examples out on us. And yet that very same reality of looking in this broad stroke of this grand history of the faith of God's people, it creates a difficult challenge for us this morning because that history includes both victories of faith and the suffering of faith. And that's another reason why I think it's important that we take on this entire section all at once. We could have broken this apart and done multiple sermons, but I think there's something to the weight of the repetitive kind of piling on nature of what the author's intending to do here that we need to soak in all at once. And then I think we also need to soak in all at once both the victories of faith and the suffering of faith that we see both here in this same section in verses 32 through 40. There is a tension that we're going to have to live in that we see in this section between a life of faith that leads to victories and a life of faith that leads to suffering and hardship. 
And look, if we're being honest, and we, we must, of course, Lord willing, be honest, this tension that we find in these verses leaves us in a really uncomfortable position. Right? It's not, it's not comfortable. It's an uncomfortable position to be in here on this earth because it means that the outcome of our faith and our lives here and our time here on earth, the outcome of our faith is unpredictable. It's unpredictable. It may mean dramatic victories. It may mean unthinkable suffering. And the path that our faith may take is unknowable. It's unpredictable. The quality of your faith, the longevity of your faith bears no relation to the victories or the suffering that you may experience in your life. That lies solely in the hands of our gracious, kind, sovereign King and Father, the God of the Scriptures. And if we're just, as I said, if we're being brutally honest, even though that's true, I believe the Bible teaches it, it's not easy to hear. That's an uncomfortable truth to hear. In fact, that's one of the reasons why the prosperity gospel is so popular. The, the prosperity gospel, also sometimes called the, the health and wealth gospel or health and wealth theology, that, that gospel that claims that the outcome of your faith is always predictable with absolute certainty because what it claims is, is if you are faithful, you will have material wealth and you will have perfect health. And if you're not faithful, then you will not be healthy. You will not have wealth. That, that if you are sick, if you are struggling, if you are suffering, then it must be something wrong with you. If you're poor, it must be something wrong with your faith. It's because you lack faith that you don't have health and that you don't have wealth. Well, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 40 I believe, along with many other places in Scripture, places the prosperity gospel in the trash heap where it belongs. Instead of this false, untrue predictability of our faith, we're being called to live in this tension. This tension that forces us to see that our ultimate hope will not be found in this world. The end goal of our faith, the end goal of our faith is not to improve our station in this life, but to prepare us and others for the eternal one. That's what the believers that, to whom this letter was originally written needed to hear. They, they needed to hear that, right? They were struggling. They were suffering. They were being persecuted. They had historically been thrown in prison, had their property plundered. The persecution was rising again. They were ready to give up. This can't be what God wants for our lives. They were convinced of that or becoming convinced of that. And the author of Hebrews writes this to them to say, no, no, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Don't throw away your confidence. You have have need of endurance. Hear me out. 
There's something greater awaiting you than what may come to you in this life. And so they needed to hear that. And brothers and sisters, we need to hear this message this morning so that we also can endure faithfully to the very last day. And so we need to look at both sides of this tension this morning and then see together the ultimate goal of our faith that will help us endure through that kind of tension. And so our outline for this morning is to look at both sides of this tension and then ultimately to look at the end goal of our faith. So number one, let's look at victorious faith. Number two, let's look at suffering faith. And then finally, number three, the end goal of faith. Victorious faith, suffering faith, the end goal of faith. So let's look first at victorious faith that we see there in verses 32 through the first uh, sentence of verse 35. Let me read it for us again. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Now, I love the first sentence, right, of this section. And what more shall I say, right? It's like the author, it feels like he's piled on example after example through all these men and women we've looked at already. He's like, do I need to say more? But yet, at the same time, this immense history of God's people is flooding through his mind. And it's like he can't contain all that's there and all that is to be said about God's faithfulness to his people who have placed their trust and faith in him. And so he says, look, there's so much more to say. There's so much more that needs to be said that I could pile on. He says, look, time would fail me. Time would fail me if I gave all the details of all these other men and women of faith of Gideon and uh, Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets. And then just his mind is exploding with examples of God's faithfulness to his people. But yet he knows he has to stop somewhere. He can't just keep going on and on. You know, it reminds me of what John says in his gospel account about Jesus, John 21, 25, I love this verse. John's getting to the end of his gospel account and he says of Jesus, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Look, there's a lot of books written. <laughs> Right, you, it, it just the Christian publishing world, it's impossible to keep up with to say nothing of the broader, uh, just secular world of publishing. But yet John says, look, if I kept going about everything there is to say about Jesus, the world couldn't even contain the books that would be written about him. It's almost like that's what the author of Hebrews is feeling here, right? Time's gonna fail me. I, I just, I wanna go on, but I can't go on because there's so much to say about God's faithfulness to his people who have put their faith in him. And look, that alone, even just this first sentence, is meant to fill us with hope and confidence in our faithful God. That there are an un, there is an unending list of examples of God's faithfulness. 
through those uh, who have trusted in him. Now, let me just mention a, a little bit of a tangent piece of application here. The author of Hebrews didn't have time to list every single person and event he was thinking of because his mind was filled literally with examples. Why was his mind filled with examples? Because he had made himself a student of the Old Testament scriptures. So if you want to have that experience that the author of Hebrews had, it's available to you. Read God's word. Place yourself daily in reading God's word. Read the Old Testament every year if you can or every two years, whatever it may be. Get on a Bible reading plan and you're going to fill your head with examples of God's faithfulness to where you will have an unending list of examples of God's faithfulness to his people, of what a life looks like that, that, that lives with faith in our sovereign, kind, father, creator, God. Right? It, it, it's a glorious thing to have so many examples in your mind that it's hard to pick just one to help you endure faithfully in your walk with Christ. That's available to everyone in this room this morning. But our author goes on to list a few examples here. He just wants to pile the examples on, and he mentions these six individuals, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and then the prophets. Just a quick summary of each of these men. I would encourage you, however, to spend some time this week reading about their lives in detail. Gideon, one of the most well-known of the judges, uh, his most, the most well-known event in his life is he has these thousands of men ready to go to war. And God says, look, Gideon, that's too many guys. You got too many guys to go to war against an army that the Bible describes that is as many as the sands on the seashore. And so he goes through a whittling down process and he ends up with just 300 men. 300 men that he takes into battle and God says, that's the number I want. Because that's the number that will show my glory when I lead you to victory. And so in faith, Gideon leads these 300 men to victory and God routs their enemies. Barak leads Israel to victory against the Canaanite army led by Sisera who had 900 chariots of iron. That would have been an overwhelming, powerful force that no army could have stood against on their own. And yet God leads them into an overwhelming victory over this Canaanite army. We have Samson. Again, one of the most well-known uh, well judges found in the book of Judges, <clears throat> he grows his hair out. God says, you know, as long as you exhibit faith and have your hair long, I will give you incredible strength, immense, unthinkable strength. He takes out uh, uncountable Philistines by this power and strength of his own hand. Samson was an imperfect man. His life was filled with examples of sin and, 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 and bad choices and rebellion against God's law. But yet, even in the midst of his moral failings, even in the midst of moral failings that lead to him being deceived and having his head shaved and losing his strength, in his last moments, when he was in chains in the house of the Philistines who were mocking him between two pillars, and his hair began to grow back with one last moment of faith in God. 
he has to be given strength for one last time to bring down the house on the enemies of God, the Philistines who were there partying and mocking him. And God gives him the strength with his last breath. Jephthah, another judge, led Israel to a miraculous victory over the Ammonites. King David, right? We could give example after example of the faith in King David's life, even when he was a small boy and he goes and the whole army is trembling with fear at, the, at this giant Goliath and he says, how dare you mock the living God, right? And he goes down with his slingshot and stones and takes down Goliath in an act of faith and trust in his God. He's the greatest king in the, history of, in the history of Israel, led multiple victories with the people of God over the enemies of God. Samuel served as essentially this transition between the judges and the kings, the last judge, and then led to anointing the monarchs of Israel, Saul, and then David. He was a faithful prophet who anointed David as king. And in fact, in the moment that the people asked Samuel to crown a king, he recounts God's faithfulness through many of these very same men that the author of Hebrews lists here in Hebrews chapter 11. And then, of course, he mentions the prophets. These men named and some even unnamed that we don't know about who were faithful, who were faithful men of God. And then he lists the accomplishments of these men and others in verses 33 to 35. These incredible, miraculous victories that God brought through these, these men who were trusting in their God. And just listen to this list of events that happened. Some of these will stand out to you. You'll know exactly what the author is referring to. They conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, right? You, you, you know what that's referring to, right? These, these miraculous military victories that God brought through Gideon and Barak and Jephthah and many, many others, right? Throughout the judges, when the people would finally come to the their senses and, and, and come back to God. He raised up judges to, to lead them in victory over uh, their, the enemies of God. They forced justice. They obtained the promises, right? Eventually they were given the promised land that was promised to them and they slowly over time defeated more and more of the enemies of God who were occupying the land. It says that they stopped the mouths of lions now, of course, we immediately think of Daniel, right? In that instance, who was thrown into the lion's den to be punished for praying publicly. And yet God spared him and the mouths of the lions were closed because Daniel trusted God enough to remain obedient to him in prayer instead of obeying the command of the government. But we also see in the lives of Samson and David that they stopped the mouths of lions. Both of them encountered lions with their bare hands and took them out. These men quenched the power of fire. Of course, that's from Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. And so he throws them into the fiery furnace. But they were not touched by the flames. They were not harmed by the flames. And they stepped out alive, rescued from the power of fire. These men escaped the edge of the sword. We could give example after example from David's life, 
when Saul was coming after him, he escaped time after time after time. Even when he was a child or, or younger, it wasn't escaping the edge of the sword. It was literally escaping the spears that Saul was chunking at him in the throne room, right? And he avoided it, right? God spared him. And then we have the life of Elisha. And I've talked about this example many times when an entire army is coming after Elisha, right? They want to take him down. And Elisha's servant is terrified. They're surrounded by the army. And Elisha prays to God and says, just open the eyes of my servant so that he can see what I see. And God answers that prayer in the affirmative and opens the eyes of Elisha's servant. And he looks up. And he sees that they're surrounded by chariots of fire, the army of God protecting them from this entire army that was coming after them. They escaped the edge of the sword. These men were mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. Again, we saw it throughout the book of Judges. We see it throughout David's feats of war. We see it in David's mighty men. Right, that's an incredible account. If you look at Second Samuel 23, where it says that the chief of David's three mighty men killed 800 men with a spear at one time. Don't ask me how, but the Bible says it happened, right? Mighty men, mighty in war, putting foreign armies to flight. And then as if that list isn't enough on its own, there at the end, at the beginning of verse 35, women receive back their dead by resurrection. This seems to be a clear reference to both Elijah and Elisha, each of whom raised the son of a widow from death to life. These are miraculous, overwhelming, powerful victories that God wrought through, through men and women who put their faith and trust in him. Powerful examples of God at work through, in his people through faith because they trusted in him. He provided power, victory, salvation from lions, fire, swords, and armies. Right? We should see in this section of verses the mighty, powerful, sovereign hand of God that is able to accomplish his promises. Right? That nothing can stand in the way of God accomplishing his promises and keeping his word to his people. He is worthy of our trust. Right? He is worthy of our confidence. He is able. He is able to deliver his people from the most seemingly impossible situations, even if it means he has to raise someone from the dead, which it says that he did, right? He is capable of all things. Nothing can stand in his way. There is no limit to his power. That's what we should leave this section seeing and believing, that God is able to deliver the victory. Right? We're left with no questions about that. Therefore, we have no excuse to fail to trust him. But this glorious truth also presents a dilemma. Right? This is where the tension comes. If God is able to conquer kingdoms and stop the mouths of lions and quench the power of fire and bring back the dead by resurrection through Elijah and Elisha, then why hasn't he done that for us at times? What about that loved one who died far too young that he didn't deliver from death? Why didn't God 
take the cancer away? Why didn't he heal the broken marriage? Why hasn't he given healing to the chronic condition you may suffer with? Because the first section of this, right, has made clear that he can. He could. And we need to hear that. We need to hear that he can. Right? We need to not play that down. We need to exalt it, rest in it, glorify him for it, that he can deliver us. But what that tells us is that if he can and he hasn't, then he's still at work. It lets us know that we're not in our place of suffering because God can't do anything about it. Right? We're there because it's his design for our lives, that he loves us, even though it's hard to understand. Right? We rest in Romans 8, 28, that God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so with every confidence we can say, he could deliver me. It's not by accident that I'm here. It's not because he's not able. It's not because he doesn't love me, right? The Bible has made that clear. He sent Jesus to die for me. What more could he give to me than that? But he has us in that place of suffering for our good and for his glory and for his good purposes. This, therefore, is when we need to hear about the faith that helps us endure in the midst of suffering. We need to hear that faith is not all about being delivered, but also about being sustained. I mean, to be honest, I was, I was a little hesitant to title the first section Victorious Faith. Because I didn't want to indicate that the second section is not also Victorious Faith. Because faith that endures in the midst of suffering is victorious faith. God has not failed us when we endure through suffering. He has been with us and kept us every step of the way. So when we have endured in the midst of suffering, we have in fact experienced victorious faith. Let me make that clear this morning. Nevertheless, let's look at the faith that leads to suffering. Suffering faith. Second half of verse 35 through 38. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Now, before we even get into the details here, I, I just want to be sure we acknowledge that these should be difficult stories for us to hear. These are not actors on a set. This is not mythology. These are real things that happen to real people, people of God, people who are trusting in their sovereign Father, people who are loved by God. 
So I, I just want to be sure we feel the weight that this is, this is real torture and being sawn in two. So it says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. The word for torture here is uh, likely refers to the act of being stretched on a rack, having your limbs pulled to the point of breaking and even ripping from your body. And as they were either being stretched or threatened with being stretched, they were offered the chance to recant their faith and live. But this verse says that they would rather die with their enduring faith intact so that they could rise to a better life, namely to be with Christ. We don't know with certainty what the author is referring to here, but it's likely a reference to what occurred during the time of the Maccabees. This is a period between the Old Testament and the New Testament and the New Testament that we have some historical record of. And there was a man by the name of Eliezer that was offered a chance to live if he renounced the law of God. He was threatened with this very act of being stretched on a rack. But he refused to renounce the law of God and instead chose to be condemned to the rack. And then later in the historical account in the Maccabees, seven brothers were tortured. And this is what they said. You dismiss us from the present life, but the king of the universe will raise us to an everlasting reward of life. This is what sustaining faith looks like. Look, this is the faith of the apostle Paul, Philippians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. It's far better to be with Christ. And so they refused to turn their back on their faithful God. On their faithful God. They placed their faith in him, accepted the consequences, so that they could have their faith intact to the end, that they might rise again to a better life. Others, verse 36, tell us, suffered mocking and flogging and chains and imprisonment. Jesus told us that if we follow him, the world's going to hate us like they hated him. That has always been true of God's people. The world hates God's people. Now, that doesn't mean we need to be jerks, right? It doesn't mean we need to be hated on purpose. But the reality is we're going to be hated if we're faithful to Jesus. We're going to be mocked. And historically, what would happen in the lives of, of, of the people of God and of those who follow Christ, they're mocked, they're flogged. To be flogged means to be beaten with a whip or a, or a stick or a pole severely as a form of punishment. And then often this is sequential. They were mocked and they were flogged. And then after they were beaten, thrown in prison. Others, it says, were stoned. They were stoned. We know in 2 Chronicles chapter 24, Zechariah, one of the prophets, was stoned to death simply because he told the people that they were disobeying the Lord's command because they were worshiping idols and false gods and that sent them into such a rage that they stoned him. That they took rocks weighing multiple pounds, not pebbles, not, stone, not small stones, 
Stones that would take an entire man's hand and buried him under them. Of course, we also know in the book of Acts that this happens to Stephen and his faithfulness. We know from Paul's accounts of his suffering that he was stoned to the point of death. He was drugged out of the city, left for dead. But in God's miraculous power, he was delivered from death in that instance. But Zechariah and Stephen were not. They were stoned to death. Verse 37 says some were sawn in two. We don't know exactly, uh, with a, again, with 100% certainty who that refers to, but there is some historical evidence that this happened to the prophet Isaiah, that in his faithfulness to God suffered the condemnation by the government of his day of being cut in half. Of course, many faithful men throughout history have been killed by the sword there at the end of verse 37 and in many other brutal, unthinkable ways that the men and women of God have been killed, burned at the stake, fed to lions, and on and on the list goes. But verse 37 goes on to say this isn't just about the difficulty of their deaths. It's also just the difficulty of their day-to-day lives. Right? Verse 37 says, They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Just their day-to-day lives were difficult. They were outcasts. They often had nowhere to lay their heads. They wandered about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. They were rejected by society. They were accepted nowhere. Faithful. God-fearing men and women of God treated in these ways. But what does verse 38 say of them? Of whom the world was not worthy. The world was not worthy of these men and women. The world didn't deserve to have people of such faith and confidence in God that even in the face of torture and unimaginable, unimaginable cruelty, their faith did not falter and they endured to the end. Now the world was not worthy of them, but Christ was worthy of them. Christ was worthy of their enduring faith. Christ was worthy of their suffering. Listen, this should inform us with how we pray both for those who are suffering and for ourselves when we are suffering. This is the tension we live in, right? So the first section says to us, when we are suffering, we ought to pray for healing and deliverance, right? It is good and right to pray for those things. We ought to pray for those things. God is able to do them, right? The evidence is right here in front of us in verses 32 through 35. He is able and capable and willing to do such things. And we should ask him to. But it doesn't mean that he will. And so while we pray for healing and deliverance, we should also pray for endurance. Pray that he would sustain our faith in the midst of the suffering of our loved ones and in the midst of our own suffering. Never pray for someone going through suffering without praying for their deliverance, 
but also for their endurance. Pray that God will sustain their faith and keep them to the very end. Our prayers should be filled with pleading to God to sustain our faith. Look, this is what Jesus did for Peter, right? He told Peter, look, Satan has, demand, has asked permission, demanded to sift you like wheat. But Jesus said, look, Peter, I'm going to pray for you, what? That your faith may not fail. And Peter struggles, right? He faces accusations and, and, and he, he faces potential persecution. And, and in the moment, he gives in. And he denies that he knows Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. But the king of the universe had already prayed for him. And ultimately, Peter's faith did not fail. This is what lives look like of whom the world is not worthy. It is those whose faith does not fail and who endure to the end. It's why the author of Hebrews says that we have need of endurance. And look with me. This is so important in verse 39. And all these, though commended through their faith, just pause right there. All of these, all of them were commended for their faith. This is so important for us to hear this morning. Whether they rode into victory over a mighty ar army on the back of a beautiful steed and God gave them the victory and deliverance, or whether they were stoned to death, and sawn in two. They were all commended for their faith. Every single one of them. Your faithfulness is not measured by the victories God brings to your life or by the suffering that God brings to your life. It can only be measured by the motivation and the affections of your heart and the endurance of your faith to the end. So what is the end goal of faith? Here's where we're going to conclude this morning. The end goal of faith. Look at verses 39 and 40 with me. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Now what is the author of Hebrews talking about here? He says they did not receive, they did not receive what was promised. Yet verse 33 says they obtained promises. <laughs> right? What, what, what's going on here? Yes, there were promises that were given to the men and women of God throughout the Old Testament that they obtained, right? Promises that happen. You're going to have a, I'm going to bring you a child. God faithfully brings them a child. I'm going to uh, be with you to get through the Red Sea. They got through the Red Sea, right? You're, I'm going to take you into the promised land. They make it to the promised land. There are promises that were obtained. But the ultimate promise, the ultimate promise, apparently, verse 39 is saying, was not yet received. It even says that they have not yet been made perfect. They're commended for their faith, but they're not yet made perfect, right? Do you, do you feel the tension here? Like, what, what is the author of Hebrews talking about in this passage? Well, it seems to be clear that what he is pointing to is the, the future resurrection. 
that one day all of us, the saints of old, the saints of today who are trusting in the finished work of Christ, we will one day join Jesus in his glorious resurrection. We will all one day be called from death to life and be given glorified bodies to dwell for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. So yes, they were commended through their faith, but they have not yet received the ultimate promise. They're still waiting you see that verse 40, because God has provided something better for us, meaning we get it too, <laughs> right? We get the resurrection too, and one day all of us together, every single man and woman who has placed their trust in Christ and the faithfulness and in the promises of God will one day together, together, not apart from each other, but together be resurrected to eternal life when Christ returns. That's what we're all waiting for. And we see evidence of this in other places in the scripture. So for example, Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they, cry, and they cried with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. There is a waiting happening in the heavenly places. Or even Romans chapter 8, verses 18 and 19. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For, this, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The entire universe groans and waits for all of us to experience the glorious resurrection through Jesus Christ. You see, that day when all of us, these saints of old and the saints of today and the saints of tomorrow, that day when all of us will be raised to resurrect to glorified bodies, it will be done by the singular power of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is by his life, his righteous life that he lived not once forsaking the Father, perfectly trusting Him. It is by that righteous life that is handed over to us. We are judged by His righteous life. It is by His death where He paid the penalty, right? Where He took the wrath of God the Father on Himself in our place so that we could be forgiven of all of our sins. And then He victoriously rose from the grave so that all who trusted in Him get everything that Christ got, which means we get His righteous life, we get His forgiveness, and we get to participate in His resurrection. And all of creation is groaning and waiting for that day. And the saints who have gone before us, though commended through their faith, God's not done with them yet until he's finished telling our story and the story of the generations of faith, of the faithful ones to come after us. And one day, one day we're all going to be presented complete with our glorified bodies in the presence of Jesus Christ, in the new heavens and the new earth for all eternity.
That's the end goal. That's where our faith takes us. And the path God has for you in this life may be different from your brother or sister in Christ. It may be through suffering. It may be through victories. More likely than not, it's through a combination of all of that. But what matters is if your faith endures to the end. And our faithful God has said he will keep us. Just as he prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail, the Bible tells us that he will complete what he has begun in us. He will keep us to the last day. And so let's not throw away our confidence. We have need of endurance. May God make it so. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your faithfulness to us. As we will see next week, Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. What a glorious truth that will be to rejoice in next week, Father. We have need of endurance, and yet you have promised to give it to us and to sustain us and to keep us. And so, Father, I know there are many people in this room suffering right now, have been going through difficult situations for many years, some through chronic conditions, others through strife in their family, others through what feels like brokenness of body and broken relationships. So Father, I just right now plead with you to sustain their faith, that you would supernaturally keep their eyes fixed on Christ. Father, I pray that you would deliver them from these things that you would deliver them from their suffering, from their, their chronic conditions, from their illness, from their broken relationships, from, from their suffering, that you would deliver them, that you would give them peace and wholeness, that you would bring healing. But Father, whatever you choose to do for them, we know that you are working for their good. And I pray as difficult as, as it is that you would continue to keep their eyes open to that truth, that you would sustain their faith by that truth and that you would keep them to the very end. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.